her writing, in a sense, basically, it makes me want to be a better person. It makes me want to do better things in the world. It makes me want to find solutions as opposed to dismiss and ignore problems. Welcome to the Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast. I'm Michael Kelleher. Today we're going to talk about Pearl Clegg's 1997 novel, What Looks Like Crazy on an Ordinary Day, with Dominique Mariso, the 2023 recipient of the Wyndham Campbell Prize for Drama. Dominique is the author of over a dozen plays, including the acclaimed trilogy The Detroit Project, Pipeline, and The Confederates. She also wrote the book for the Soul Train musical and Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations. You know, I was reading what looks like crazy on an ordinary day, yeah. and uh, I have to admit that I ordered it blindly, thinking it was a play. And uh... <laughs> she's like, "Oh, that's interesting. You read her novel <laughs> and, and not her plays, but that's okay. That's it." Came home and it was like sitting on my desk for like a week, and I was looking. I was like, "God, God that's damn, that's play. a long play." <laughs> <laughs> cool. but I, I, yeah. I think it's you know yeah. you can kind of enter in anywhere, yeah. and yeah. this is a really interesting place to enter into because it's a really interesting novel and kind of a time capsule of when the AIDS crisis was still. Mm -hmm full-blown the crack epidemic was still full-blown and it's also you know it kind of fits into that kind of like you know african-american women's mm -hmm. you know romance novel mm -hmm. of that era like the kind of like terry mcmillan mm -hmm. but you know like maybe with like a sort of social consciousness uh, laden in yeah well pearl is a she's highly socially conscious in all of her work which is what i respond to a lot well, maybe we should start off by talking about pearl a little bit can you can you tell us a little bit about pearl clegg pearl clegg is a detroit born and raised and now an atlanta-based writer who is a, a writer, an essayist, a novelist, a playwright, an activist, and someone whose work has just really inspired me and my pen. When I was in college, I had friends. We did we did the whole Oprah's Book Club thing because what looks like crazy on an ordinary day was an Oprah's Book Club winner at the time. And we all responded to it just because that love was important to us at the end. Love is always important, <laughs> but but love stories and will we ever find the love story we're all looking for, that was important to us at that time. And her writing crafted the kind of ways in which we wanted to be looking at love, right? You know, it's almost like her, her, her writing taught us how to seek a romantic partnership. Pearl Clegg is in many ways more iconic to me than everyone else. No diss <laughs> to the great women writers out there of her, her contemporaries, but she's more iconic in a way just because she is so many things. She was more than a novelist. And because in, in what you mentioned, her work has a social commentary in the love language that it has. And for me, love without social consciousness is dead. It's not interesting. I don't want to see a love story that doesn't have a social consciousness to it because that's not complete. You know, it's like it's fluff. <laughs> and what I love about her work is there's no fluff, but there's heart, so much heart and soul. I did a study of her work as an actor where we read from all the passages of her work, whether it was a play, essay, some of her novels, some excerpts from her novels. And in that study of her work, I, I realized I learned so much about this one woman through reading all of her work. And I learned something about a writer's voice that made me want to create a canon of work and not just write one thing, which is what I think I had done at that time. 
one or mm. two things. And then I was like, no, I need to write a cycle of plays. I need to write something that tells some story over time so that my my voice and my my point of view on the world is not limited to one piece of text. And reading her work taught me that. Yeah, it's interesting thinking of her as a writer located someplace also. Mm -hmm. Like, I think you're a writer clearly identified with Detroit. And she's somebody who's really associated with Atlanta in a way that is, I think, unique. And I, I think that's a really interesting aspect of her work. And I wondered if that is some part of her social consciousness, right? That idea of this is the place that I live and this is the place that I make change. And if it if it goes beyond this, that is great. But what's more important to me is that I am an agent of change where I live. One of the things my research got me excited about when I was reading What Looks Like Crazy on an Ordinary Day was the location. Yeah. The main character comes from this place called Idlewild, which has an incredibly fascinating history, which intersects in like the strangest ways with the civil rights movement. And I wonder, do you know much about Idlewild? Uh, I do. I've been to Idlewild. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a very strong connection to Idlewild. It's part of my young poetry awakening, like right in the middle of college. I went away with a bunch of poets I did not know, but they're all from Detroit on an excursion to Idlewild called Poetry in the Woods. It was a festival that was produced by a local company at the time called Bout Time Publishing, kind of in the tradition of, say, Broadside Press, which mm -hmm. was a Black-owned publishing company founded in the 60s and gave voice to a lot of like radical writers. And I just happened upon them <laughs> at a poetry event where they were promoting a festival that they were trying to have in Idlewild. And that was like my birth, I feel like, as a poet, really. I met legendary poets at this festival. The last poets, the legendary last poets who are known as the godfathers and maybe even the grandfathers of rap, just these like historic poets that were at this festival. And I went, 19 years old I think I was, you know, and just met all these people and kind of cemented my, my family connection to the poets in Detroit. But Idlewild itself, was a place, you could feel the history when you're there. It was basically the Martha's Vineyard for black people when black people were not allowed to go to Martha's Vineyard. And Martha's Vineyard was segregated. And Idlewild was on a lake, and had cabins on a lake. And it's historically in the 60s and the 70s is where, you know, black folks would go to vacation. And it was it was sacred, it was special. And then of course, like everything, you know, once integration happened, some some of the losses that happened, even though there were so many gains in integration, but there were also losses and like loss of these sacred spaces, these affinity spaces were then gone. People got into, they would go to Martha's Vineyard and take all their tourism dollars to Martha's Vineyard and sort of stop going to Idlewild. And so this also was a push to revitalize Idlewild at that time. It was like in, two, I don't even remember what year it was, but whenever it was, I was in college. <laughs> That's all we need to yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was 19. I was in college. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it's a it's a special place. And so she's a historical writer, you know. She invokes 
places of history in a very organic way, not in a very, not in a like didactic way. And that's something I learned from her as a writer as well. So invoking Idlewild into what looks like crazy on an ordinary day just felt like she's bringing that history and that legend into a romance story. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really interesting setting because, it, you know, the main character is actually from yeah. the tourist town. Yeah. So she's one of these very unusual people who actually grew up not, you know, was not vacationing there, yeah. but actually was a part of that place. And yet she returns to a place that's altered. The only people who are still really living there are the older yep. folks who are clinging to their cabins. Yep. And they're sending young juvenile delinquents from Detroit <laughs> back to Idlewild to, because they think the country life will do them good. And you know that's disrupting what's left of the social fabric left in this town. But it provides a really interesting setting to talk about a lot of really significant issues of the present, but also like of that particular moment as well. I mean, the main character, the book opens, she lives in Atlanta. She's found out that she's HIV positive. And the stigma of that has caused her to lose her business. And I mean, and that's such a real detail about that time, like the early days of the AIDS crisis when you know, it was basically like, don't touch people, don't breathe near people. I mean, yeah. you know, we we kind of went through this at the beginning of the pandemic yep. where like nobody knew what was going on. But there was the added stigma that it was considered like this gay disease or this drug addicts mm -hmm. disease. When I was in college, one of the colleges I went to <laughs> was a small Jesuit university in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia. And one of the science courses that we took was like the course that everybody took that wasn't into science, like is what all the English majors took. And it was taught by the president of the college, who was a Jesuit priest. And many weird things happened in that class. But there was this one moment where he started teaching about HIV. And this is like 1986. Mm -hmm. You know, we're like full blown, mm -hmm. like Reagan is still in denial. Mm -hmm. And he brought in a nurse to the class from the local AIDS ward at the hospital to basically say to us like, you can touch you can touch people. Mm -hmm. You can shake their hands, you can kiss them. You know what I mean? And it was this really powerful moment for me to kind of re-experience that through the protagonist of this story. This person who's discovered they've got this virus and is trying to figure out how to manage it in their own lives, but also how to try to manage her relationship to other people who either willfully or not don't know what this means for them. Well, I think also was important to name is like this book was written in the 90s right like in it's the like mid 90s, 90s. yeah and yeah. so while that was it was still the aids epidemic even when it hit in the 80s and had all the stigma the stigma didn't go away and what in fact happened was then black women started being disproportionately impacted mm -hmm. by hiv and aids i've worked in the early 2000s i started working in high schools across the country doing theater and education work, dealing with violence in the community, dealing with harassment, racial harassment. But the most consistent thing I did and the longest running work that I did was in HIV AIDS education. Hmm. And the disproportionate ways in which it affected women of color toward the late 90s and early 2000s, HIV was no longer a death sentence, you know. Then we started campaigning the language of living with HIV. You know, people live with HIV to this day much longer than they did in the 80s. So I'm just saying that to say what what Pearl Clegg is doing and what looks like crazy is putting that consciousness and that impact on a black woman, which that was not the face of the conversation before. And this is what her work has done for me and why I feel seen and 
and felt fueled by her work because I started to see myself and the national narrative that I was being erased from. It's like when the pandemic happened, to your point, it was disproportionately impacting people, certain people, <laughs> you know? And that wasn't being discussed. We were not caring <laughs> how safe we needed to be for certain people. I lost a lot of people in 2020. Mm. I lost a lot yeah. of people. We lost a lot of people as a country. And I lost a lot of people personally. So I could never take that as lightly as maybe some people could, who I felt like, were like, yeah, I was sick, but I'm okay. You know, I'm like, oh, I lost, I mean, deaths, deaths, many, many and multiple. And Detroit had a lot of it. And mm. so for a while I was seeing it, like the only people I knew personally who were dying in 2020 were from Detroit mm. of COVID. And they were in my family, a lot of them. And in my yeah. friend network. And I lost my grandmother to COVID. I've lost friends my age. I mean, the first person to die of COVID in Detroit and when he made the newspaper was a friend of mine who was mm. my age, was young mm. and healthy and vibrant and alive and becoming an icon in the city. And to lose him the way that we lost him, not only was it devastating, but it was dismaying, you know. Mm. It could be just befuddled us, you know, and that was terrifying. And so I say that to say, so when, when people are disproportionately impacted by something, to make them the face of a thing that we haven't made them the face of, it, it says a lot to how we're treating a, a illness or any kind of thing when we think, oh, it's those people, you know? When I used to teach HIV AIDS education, we used to say to young people, it really doesn't matter what you call yourself. The only thing that matters is what you're doing. Mm. <laughs> your title, your name, your identity, language, None of that matters. What you need to know is what behaviors are risky and what behaviors are safer, but it has nothing to do with what you call yourself. And so I think that to me, Pearl putting like a, a different face on this topic, addressing the disproportionate way it was now starting to impact African-American women, putting that on a love story and trying to figure out how people are finding love. She was always a little bit to me ahead of the curve in her writing and the embracing of the communities that she embraced. She's gonna force us to read with love these people that we might be otherwise dismissing and writing off. One of the things that I really appreciate about her work is that I think it's really difficult as an artist to say, I'm going to say X, or I'm going to put X message across to my audience, and then also make it art and and also make you forget that like you're reading a novel or make you yeah. forget that you're watching a play and not make you feel like you're watching you know a PSA or something like that yeah. and she does that so seamlessly through these characters how does that resonate with you as a writer like how do you manage that I mean it's the same I manage it by the way that I would live anything you're writing anything you're trying to write with meaning it's about the way that it jumps into our laps. And if I can make believe and walk my way through it, I'm going to have way more fun time in it. I don't think about being socially conscious, like I better say something socially conscious. And I don't think about I better entertain. <laughs> I don't I don't think oh, neither one of those two yeah. things <laughs> gets in my head, actually, as a writer. I don't. I, I think of what keeps me up at night, what I have a bunch of questions about, what itches me. And when I write plays, I'm essentially writing conversations I want to have with people. If you're the kind of person that wants to have a good conversation, a juicy conversation, then I'm your writer. Let's talk, you know? <laughs> if that's not your thing, then I'm probably not your writer. But I, I just like to have a good, well-balanced 
conversation. I think when I see work that is trying to entertain, I think we all see it and we know it and it feels, Mm. it's a little icky, Mm. (laughs) you know? But when it's trying to be authentic and truthful to itself, it will entertain. It will do all those things just naturally. It will hold space for this like vast human experience. It will show us ourselves. It will show us a world that we don't know and will bring other people who we never thought were in our likeness and show us our likeness in each other. The work will do that naturally. If we don't put, if we don't try too hard, that's what the art does. That's like the magic of it. So if you don't try to manipulate it, if you serve the art and you don't try to like manipulate it, it will serve you back. Um, and that's sort of how I, I look at both what she does and the tradition that I'm following in her writing. Mm. Yeah, I feel like she's so good at writing these rich, complicated characters. I was, I'm also really interested in the men in this book. They're quite a set. I mean, I, I will say this about her work for me and just this influence, is that she sees black men in their total humanity. Whether they hurt, harm, or heal, she sees them all. And I think that that's fair. She's a fair writer of them. She can address and attack, actually, misogyny without attacking black men. And I mm. think that's profound. And I think as a black woman writer myself, and I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm invoking black men as a specific site of people because I think that socially they feel they are most fragile sometimes or most discardable, most disposable to society and often mishandled. We see that in mishandling in the rest of the country and the way in the mishandling in the fabric of the world and the fabric of authority and government and the treatment of policing and aggressive policing. All these things black men feel very and have been treated very disposably, right? And it's easy when black women have had to write about black men over history, over time, when when we've written about our own experiences and black men are included in that experience. Many times they have felt, I guess, a sense of betrayal or as if black women are hating black men. In the naming of our harms by black men, we're also somehow betraying them and and not taking into the factor of their social fragility, you know? And I think that's a lot of burden to lay on a black woman writer. <laughs> mm. You take it back to Ntozaki Sean Gay with for color girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow was enough. And while that's mm. censoring black women, how black men felt very thrown under the bus in that piece of work. Or you can you can read about it in Alice Walker, you know, and the color purple. I mean, you could just like it goes on and on of how black women writers and telling their truth and their history of abuse and and addressing of misogyny, how much they have been like pushed to to push to the line of where their loyalties are. And I think Pearl Clegg, she sort of defies that. What she has taught me as a writer and how she writes black men is if you see them in their totality and their total humanity, they are neither the one dimensional and only villain in your life and nor are they the one dimensional hero. They are actually as full and complete in our lives as they are in the world as any other men and any other people are in the world. They are full. Some hurt, some harm, some heal. And that was important for me to read because that's who my center That's who was around me, my father, my brother, my husband. I have a son, you know, like all of those. I have to be very aware of what the narrative is about them because that narrative turns into ideology that turns into action against them. 
you know? Mm. So how they are perceived on page, on stage, on screen is how they are then treated socially. And that's a heavy burden for black women to have to carry that. We can't tell like, oh my God, if I say this black man hurt me, that I'm relegating them to a stereotype. Rather, they are fully dimensional. They are hurt. Sometimes you are hurt because you hurt because you are hurt or you are fragile. You are also I'm stuck in a place. Or sometimes you are hurt and another person in your life can help to heal that or call that out or denounce that. She does all of those things. And for me, I find myself as a writer in many of my, my own works, whether it's Skeleton Crew, Paradise Blue. Definitely Paradise Blue was inspired by Pearl Clegg. Um, Detroit 67, Pipeline, all of these things that I write, I have been told by men of all backgrounds, actually, and then also black men, there's an appreciation for the way that I write them. And if there is an appreciation, I don't know that everybody feels that way, but but I try to be balanced in how I write black men and men in general. And I think that I definitely got that mm. example from this writer. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about while you were talking, I, w- I was thinking about the Reverend Anderson and his wife, Jerry, as the book progresses, right? Because she's clearly set up from the minute she steps on stage as the baddie. You know what I mean? She's Mm -hmm. this like moralistic person who Mm -hmm. is living in a fantasy world of the past. She doesn't understand. She doesn't believe anything that you just said about teaching people what they need to know about HIV. She's just basically like, no, tell them to stop having sex and they'll be fine. You know what I mean? All the things. And, you know, she represents all of these terrible things. Yeah. And, but then as things go on, you start to realize the husband is absent from a lot of these conversations where she's coming down hard on the social groups in the town and Mm -hmm. so forth. And you start, you slowly start to find out that the reverend is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And then you find out that they left their big parish in Chicago. Yeah, you're telling because all the, been... the goods. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what's yeah. interesting is like you like after a while, like when it all comes out, you know, you don't feel like hatred for him mm-hmm. necessarily. And you also don't feel hatred for her, too. Like you realize that for her maintaining his reputation is important is like essential to her own sense of who she is as as it's it's her connection to a middle class life it's her connection to respectability yep. which maybe she doesn't find elsewhere in society yeah. and to lose that to give up his reputation is to give up her own and it really makes you feel sympathetic towards her at the same time that's what i'm saying so a friend of mine says this thing about pearl's work that made me sort of revisit it and gravitate toward it, which is Pearl loves us. And I was like, (laughs) she loves us. She loves us. You can tell when a writer doesn't love the people that they write about. (laughs) For better, for worse. I I always laugh because uh, I don't know if you ever watched Family Guy, the show Family Guy, but Uh me and my husband would watch Family Guy all the time and go, whoever the hell the real life Meg is to these people, they hate her. <laughs> like they do not like men. They are using this little character to act out, you know, sometimes funny, sometimes deeply disturbing misogyny on this character. Like really just deeply disturbing misogyny. I can't wait to find out the truth of what happened to the character Meg on Family Guy. I want to know who is inspired, who that is inspired by. But funny or not, you can tell when someone hates the people they're writing. They don't write them with dimension. 
And what I love about Pearl Clegg and what I have taken on and what I learned in what looks like crazy is just how much love she has for us and how it teaches me to love differently. That's why I say it's a love story, but it's a love story more than a romantic love story. It's a love story of community, you know? It's asking a question about a place like Idlewild and the abandonment of it and like what what how does that place how does that place? I mean, when I, I listened to you first talk about the send all the so-called delinquents there, you know? But like, I'm like, yeah, that's, imagine if we could just send people, <laughs> you know, to other places. You can't just send them there arbitrarily. There has to be a program and some kind of like support system. But imagine that we've invested in people's healing and not just their criminalization. What kind of society that would look like, you know? And their total and full healing, very resourced healing, not like get them all out of jail and let them go back to doing every, anything let and everything. Let somebody else take care right, of them. Right. You know, yeah. like when we really totally invest in addiction, we're trying to push for that. And I mean, it's, it's timely, really. It's timeless, her writing. You know, that was written in the 90s. And here we are. We're still talking about mental health crises. And we're still talking about like how to look at people what ways are we going to it's there's a way in which that conversation you're talking about in the book almost is like the precursor to the conversation of restorative justice and like what mm. does that look like you know yeah. and does it work and like how does abolition work in terms of the, the mass incarceration you know and how can it work if we're not going to put the full resources behind a new kind of institutionalism a healing kind of institutionalism as opposed to a punishing kind of institutionalism. It makes a difference when you can take a, a horrible, what we consider the most horrible kind of people. And not that she's letting, I don't think she lets people off the hook at all. And some things happen in that book. I don't want, I'm not going to give a detail or spoil alert. Oh, we're, we, we can know. spoil no, away. That's I'm not a, spoiling. It's a podcast. No. That's what yeah, we do. but it's a book. <laughs> I, I will not. I am a writer who will never spoil a book. I will, I will, I'm leading you to go read the books. But something, something does happen inside the book that it arrests me so much in my memory. I think I've pushed it away, but it just, it's, uh, it's, it's small details of like how people can withstand harm and and who can withstand, what people do when they can't withstand harm. And what stayed with me from the book was a feeling, a sense after this book of healing, both through your art, like in your writing and healing in your community. She can paint up what is broken in people in a way that makes me feel ignited to try to do something because she does it with dimension. Because she does it with care and deafness and love, it does not make me close the door or, duh, I don't read that. It makes me want to do something and be better. Her writing, in a sense, basically, it makes me want to be a better person. It makes me want to do better things in the world. It makes me want to find solutions as opposed to dismiss and ignore problems. I, I just think that's a high calling in writing. And not everybody can do that. And that is something that I strive for in my writing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the romance novel aspect of this is really fascinating because it, that's really just the kind of structure of it. Yeah. But Ava, the main character, you know, she's been diagnosed with HIV. She's and trying to figure out and navigate a relationship through that. Yeah. It's not just like, can I find love, right? It's like, can I find love? And can that person love me knowing that yeah. there's this... Very Barrier. serious complication yeah. that could complicate their 
health future, you know, yeah. in relationship to this person? And can she find love still? And how do they find that love safely and with everyone's wellness at the center? Like, it's just a very, I think it's a very progressive question that the love story asks. That's what I'm saying when I say when I when I read it. And when we read it, when I read it almost 20 years ago, I guess, you know, maybe even longer, we were searching for what partnership looks like for ourselves as young women. You know, like, let's read this book and then talk about, (laughs) you know, but it was, it's almost like it was a blueprint. She, she becomes like a blueprint of here's how you think about love and its fullness and its relationship. And also I think it's worth saying because she has that, Pearl Clegg herself has that kind of marriage and that kind of love that she has talked about. She has done it not only in what looks like crazy in an ordinary day, but she has several other plays and pieces of work that reflect that celebration of of really good f- foundational and balanced love, you know. Mm. What is your favorite Pearl Clegg play? She has a play called, I don't know if this is my favorite, but it, it depends on what day you ask me. <laughs> but there are two for different reasons. Flying West, I just love the strong women in that story. I feel seen, heard, and affirmed in that story. And question, like it makes me question how I'm showing up and how I look at abuse and how I stand up to it. Flying West is a community of, of, of black women who are going to be like a part, creating a new black, out of slavery, creating a new black free society. And it's a historical play yes. in the 19th century, Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. And, um, but it also, inside of these three black women, one of them has a partner, a, a husband, I think, or a fiance, a husband, who comes home, and he's sort of a threat to their free society. He has a different kind of upwardly mobile ideology, something that threatens the idea of these women being free. He's misogynistic, he's abusive, But it's also looking at his mentality of community and where he is versus where these women are and how they stand up against that and help liberate themselves. You know, it's an amazing story and probably maybe her most produced, uh, but that's Flying West. But there's another one, which is called Bourbon at the Border, which is way less known. And Bourbon at the Border is about a couple who through the civil rights movement and the war that was waged on civil rights activists who have now recovered from that war in a way. And so it has interrupted their ability to be in a relationship together. But they come together to address that with each other. I'll leave it at that, but it just, it it moves me. What moved me about that particular piece is a a little more dangerous. but it also makes me think it's in the tradition of like a Fannie Lou Hamer, some people who have had to suffer abuse during the civil rights movement and how much we've let that go. You know, like we don't, we never deal with the people who would deal with all the, you cannot have dogs sicked on you and the war, the literal war that was waged on civil rights activists. You cannot be beaten in jails and not be traumatized and have PTSD about that. And so she holds space for the PTSD of that generational trauma from coming with the other side of the movement, you know, and coming out of that, how that affects a couple, you know, who who otherwise had a very strong love story. 
Mm. I think one of my other favorite works of Pearl Clegg's canon is Mad at Miles. And that's an essay Mm. that she wrote about Miles Davis. Mad at Miles is an essay that basically addresses Miles Davis's abuse to women. Mm. And she asked some arresting questions about loving his music, but not condemning the abuse. Yeah. And it's a, it's it's of the conversation of now. I mean, it's like, it's sort of the precursor to the mute R. Kelly movement. And it, it was revolutionary at the time of her writing and not popular, you know, because mm-hmm. Miles Davis is the genius yeah. and yeah. the gift, um, the musical gift that he was but also cause harm. And the question she was asking her generation about Miles Davis and how we support Miles Davis, that made me ask myself a lot of questions about my generation, my hip hop generation that I love dearly that has a casualty list that is high from abuse. Yeah. And what yeah. does that, you know, how, how can I love this music so much and still be mistreated inside of it? You know, and how, how do I love something that holds so much space for misogyny but also hold some space for like a new vision and a radical mm. thinking of a better tomorrow. Like how can they have both, yeah. <laughs> you know? And she yeah. asked that same question in Mad at Miles. So it just made me reckon with that for myself. It inspired my play Paradise Blue, mm-hmm. where I address a jazz musician who is harmful and how yeah. the community yeah. um, responds to his harm. Mm. I think Pearl Clegg inspired a lot of my work, but that play in particular was, I think, took took inspiration from Mad at Miles and the questions that it asked and also uh, took the questions that Flying West asks and, mm. and put it in my own story around gentrification in Detroit. I love that question, how do you have both? Mm-hmm. That's a hard one. It's a hard know? one. Because it's so true of so many, so many. artists. <laughs> I mean, so many. And which yeah. artists get mercy and second chances and which ones don't? Yeah. Which artists, you know, had a bad year this year and have a career again tomorrow? And I always say the court of the public court at this point is worse than the actual broken judicial system. You know, I mean, we all know that there's a very disproportionate justice that gets handed out in our actual courts. And I yeah. think as much as we call that to task to try to fix that, we do worse. Given our own power, we will like stone you to death before we know anything, any facts. And I think that that's a dangerous place to exist socially, you know. And I think we don't do enough question asking socially. We mm-hmm. just jump to a lot of conclusions. And so I think Pearl Clegg's work asks me the question. It makes me ask more questions then it does give me definitive answers. And I think her work makes me think about how do I hold you accountable and have grace and mercy for you at the same time. Thank you everyone for listening. Please be sure to rate, subscribe, and review us on your favorite podcast platform and to follow the prizes on social media. The Wyndham Campbell Prizes podcast is a program of the Wyndham Campbell Prizes, which are administered by Yale University Libraries, Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library.